We're going to continue uh, in our series today about emotions. Uh, if you'd like, you could turn to Luke chapter 15, which is where we will kind of jump off of today. And today I want to do something a little bit tricky. I want to try to talk about two emotions at once. Um, partly because they go together so often, but also because it can sometimes be very difficult to untangle these two from each other in experience. Uh, although they are different emotions, and in fact there are very different ways of dealing with them, and I, I want to make sure that we understand that. I'm going to begin talking today about guilt and shame. Um, guilt and shame. And this is really going to be a, a two-part message, so um, you're probably going to go home today and say, wow, there probably is more to say about this, and there definitely is. We're going to be in the same scripture passage for both Sundays, and we'll actually dig a little bit more deeply into it next week than we do today. But today what my goal is really is to examine what guilt and shame are, um, the feelings of guilt and shame, as well as the objective reality of guilt and shame in our lives. And I want to talk about why both of these as emotions are important, and they are real, and they're valid. They are, they are, they are at the right time, they are good things to feel. And then I want to talk a little bit about how one of these particular feelings is perhaps a lot more dangerous than the other one. So that's, that's my goal today. Next week we'll talk more about how to deal with feelings of guilt and shame. But just to get you into to thinking about this, let me give you a brief um, illustration that might, might show you the difference. Let's say that you're walking through uh, the streets of Uptown Lexington one day with some friends, and as you are, you come across a man begging on the corner, uh, begging for money. And, and you may or may not be in the habit of giving money to a guy like this, and in fact, as you approach the man, your friends start talking among themselves, and you can hear them, and they're like, you know, it's so useless to give cash to these beggars because they're only going to use it for drugs and alcohol. How could somebody so naive be so naive as, as to give cash to these guys. But let's say that for whatever reason on this occasion, you sense God prompting you to give this guy some money. And you've got a $10 bill in your pocket that, that, that you don't usually have cash on you like this. And, and, and you feel the Lord really wants you to, to help this person. And you, as much as you try to dismiss this thought as illogical and you understand what your friends are saying, you can't get it out of your mind that God wants you to do this. And you're pretty sure he does. Well, guess what? you are about to experience either guilt or shame. Because guilt is the feeling that you get when you have done something wrong, when you have failed to obey a moral commandment or principle that is important to you. And for you, obeying God's promptings at a time like this is actually a matter of right and wrong. It's a matter of guilt or innocence. And so if you don't help the man, you'll feel guilty. On the other hand, if you do help the man, you're going to feel a little bit of shame. Why? Because you're going to feel a downgrade in your status with this particular group of friends, and that's what shame is. It is the lowering of your status or your esteem in the eyes of people who care about you or whether you care about them and their opinion. Okay? And you're going to say, well, what will they think? It's going to happen one way or the other, guilt or shame, and you can see how they're different. In fact, we can go farther into this because guilt and shame are not just feelings, they are objective realities. If you don't help the man, you won't just feel guilty, you'll be guilty. Why? Because you violated your conscience before God, because you really believed he was telling you to do this. On the other hand, if you do help the man, you will experience shame, because there will be a downgrade in your status with this particular group of friends, whether you feel it or not. 
I give you this illustration just to show you some of the complexities that come with these emotions and that they are distinct from one another. Even though you, you do often feel shame when you do something that makes you feel guilty, that makes sense. That's why we have the expression, you know, you should feel ashamed of yourself. They do go together, but not always. And we all know what it's like to feel shame, to feel ashamed. You feel wrong around other people. You feel like you want to crawl away and hide. It's a horrible feeling. But just as you can be guilty of something and not feel guilty, you can also experience shame without really feeling it. You may not realize that some person or group of people has a low opinion of you, but it's true nonetheless. You can't do anything about it. And of course, you can feel shame without actually incurring it. There may be people in your life who have a very good opinion of you, but what you think whenever you're around them is something like this. If they only knew if they only knew the stuff that I've done, if they only knew what kind of person I really am, then they would hate me. They would reject me. And it's very possible also to have shame without any guilt at all. There are those who experience very real and very painful shame because of a disability, because they aren't smart or athletic, because they're part of a poor family, because someone who is close to them, maybe even in the family, has done something else that is shameful even though they didn't participate in it, and even because they've been the victim of some kind of abuse. Even though they weren't the perpetrator, they were the victim, they still feel compromised. They feel lower. They feel shame. So we have our work cut out for us the next couple of weeks trying to sort these things out. And I'm going to talk more about shame than guilt, not because guilt is unimportant, but because we talk about guilt all the time. Right? I'm a pastor, that's what I do for a living. I make you guilty, right? No, not really. But, but guilt, if you think about it, guilt and innocence are, as we know, the very heart of the gospel, that Jesus died to take the guilt of our sins upon himself so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be justified, so that we could be made right in the eyes of God, in that guilt or innocence sense. And that's important. But we might not be as familiar with shame or how it's dealt with, which is, by the way, very different from how we deal with guilt. And we'll see that. But let's go ahead and read the parable of the prodigal son here, which is where you are looking probably, found in Luke 15, starting in verse 11. I'll read through this whole thing, and this is really going to start off really just being an example for us, having to do with guilt and shame and how they're dealt with. So uh, Luke 15, verse 11, Jesus is telling a parable. He said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, Younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, and I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and he's found. Today I just, you probably know this parable, most of you are familiar with it. I just want to focus really today on verses 18 and 19, kind of in the middle there. Which is where the prodigal son comes to terms with both guilt and shame. Okay, first of all, I want you to notice the guilt part. I want you to do it. notice that he admits that he's sinned. He admits that he, he has sinned, and the way he phrases it reminds us that all guilt is relational. All guilt is relational. He says, I've sinned against heaven, meaning I've sinned against God, and I've sinned against you, Father. Sin is not merely against the law, it's also against the law giver as well. What did Jesus affirm was the greatest commandment that we were ever given? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if these two statements really do sum up all the commandments of the Bible, that means that every sin that we commit consists of failing to obey one or both of those commandments, to love God or to love our neighbor. So our guilt always involves a damaged relationship. Guilt always involves damage to a relationship. The prodigal son he has deserted his father. He did not let the grass grow under his feet. He was out of there. He, he deserted his father. He despised his family. He's betrayed his father's love. He's sinned against his father. And in squandering the time and resources and life energy that he had been given on worthless things, he had also betrayed the God who had created him and given him his life. He sinned against his family. He sinned against God. Our sin always hurts God or our neighbor in some way. But we know, as Christians, those who are in Christ, we know there's a way of dealing with our guilt. We have a way. Not, not the feeling here, but the reality of being guilty. We can deal with that reality of guilt. We need to realize our sin, admit it, confess it, ask for forgiveness, and we know that sin needs to be atoned for. The harm and the offense of it and the anger of God brought on by that sin, that all needs to be absorbed by somebody so that it can be truly forgiven. And of course, Christ has done that for us on the cross. And so someone might say, hey, if you're a Christian, why should you ever feel guilty about anything, right? You never feel, need to feel guilty because your sins are all atoned for, they're all paid for, they're all forgiven. Well, guess what? That's not true. You should feel guilty when you sin because you are guilty. And you should feel guilty when your sin hurts another person. Your feeling of guilt is kind of like a warning light that, that goes on to alert you that your relationship with God or another person has been damaged and it needs attention. 
Just like you wouldn't deactivate the warning light in your car, neither should you avoid feelings of guilt. They should tell you that something's not right in the relationship. Your sin needs to be confessed. It needs to be forgiven. It needs some, sometimes in our relationship with others, we can even make amends for what we've done to the extent that that's possible, and we should do that. And with God, you need to clear the air. You need to take care of the awkwardness and the distance that has crept into your relationship with him because of the sin. And you are brought back into full and intimate fellowship with your heavenly Father. You deal with the sin. Now the feeling, that's the objective reality of your guilt, the fact that you're guilty before God. Now the feeling of guilt does not need to remain. It doesn't, because God forgives the guilt of our sin in Christ. And some people, a lot of people, have trouble accepting that this is the case, and they still feel guilty even though it's been forgiven. I don't know how many times I've had to go to someone in the throes of self-condemnation and say, brother, what part of the cross didn't work? You know, do, do you think your sin is somehow unique that you finally found one that Calvary didn't cover? But let's go back and look at the other statement that the prodigal son makes here. Not just I'm, I've sinned, but he says, I am unworthy to be called your son. That's an expression that has more to do with shame. As Pastor West told us a few months ago when he preached on this topic, he said, guilt is about something we've done. Shame is about who we are. Not just that we've done something wrong, but that something is wrong in us. Something is wrong with us, especially as it relates to other people and what they think of us. For the prodigal son, this is not merely what have I done. This is what have I become? What is wrong with me? How can I call myself a member of my family? I'm compromised, I'm dirty, I'm worthless. My life is a disaster. That's shame. Maybe you can relate to this guy here. Is this a feeling you've ever had to deal with in your life? I'll, I'll bet you have at some point. But you might ask, is this even a valid emotion? Should this even be a thing? I mean, should people ever even feel shame? What should it matter to us where we stand with other people? Well, let's go ahead and admit it. It's a good question. Right? And in fact, very often the answer is, maybe it shouldn't matter. Let's say you have a daughter, and that daughter is in eighth grade. And she is filled with shame because she's not cool enough, or she's not pretty enough, or she's not stylish enough. And the popular girls at school are either just totally ignoring her, or they're actively making fun of her. Okay, that is a very painful experience for an eighth grade girl. And as adults, what's our first reflex to say? What are we going to say? Almost all of us would say the same thing, right? Why should you even care what those silly, shallow girls think of you? Right? And that's a good reflex because it's true. She probably shouldn't care what those silly, shallow girls think of her, but you know what? It probably won't work. You've been in eighth grade. You know how hard it is. But it's correct. It's right. Sometimes our emotions are messed up because our values are messed up. Our priorities are messed up. And sometimes we feel shame simply because we value the opinions of the wrong people. It's the same when you're trying to comfort someone who feels shame because of, of abuse or disability or because of their family situation or because people still look down on them because there's, their, there's something in their past that's been forgiven and dealt with, but it still kind of sits there and people think about it. it. It's right and it's very valid to say to another person, or even if that person is yourself, to say, hey, 
You didn't do anything to be ashamed of. This was not your doing, and it's not your fault. However, in America today, we have taken this way too far. It is one thing to say to someone, and we should, hey, do you really care what those particular people think of you? Because maybe you shouldn't. Okay, that's valid. And, but it's, you know, it's quite another thing to say this. Hey, you don't need to care what anybody thinks of you, ever. The only person in this world whose opinion matters to you should be yours. You just need to believe in yourself, you need to follow your heart, and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, you be you. Doesn't that sound right? Aren't you used to hearing that all the time? And that's, you know, because America today worships at the altar of self-expression, self-affirmation, self-actualization, self-discovery, and radical individualism. That's how we live. We decide who we are. We decide what's important to us. We decide how to choose and express our own unique individuality. No one else has the right to tell us how to live. We decide what's right and wrong. We decide what's appropriate and inappropriate. We decide what works for us, and that's what it means today in our world to live an authentic life. You know the problem with that kind of thinking? God didn't make us that way. God did not make us that way. He, God didn't make us to be radically individual and self-sufficient and self-defining people. God made us to live in community, to live in relationships with other people, and, and this is important too, and God wired us in such a way that we desire some level of esteem and some level of affirmation and some level of good opinion from the people that we live in community with. In fact, that forms part of the basis of the relationships that we have, the, the relationships themselves. Think about it. If you, don't, if you don't care what somebody else thinks of you at all, how can you have a very close relationship with that person? You can't. You can't. Today, in the West, we are attempting to crucify shame. We're trying to completely do away with it. And as a result, we are becoming shameless. And, and it's probably most obvious when you look at the entertainment industry and you see what people are wearing and you see what they're willing to do on a stage or on a music video or on some award show and you're looking at the TV and you're saying, isn't that person ashamed to do that? No, not so much, not anymore. Shamelessness is the name of the game. Shamelessness has become a virtue. But you know what, it's easy to pick on Hollywood, right? We can do that all day. So let's go back to that poor eighth grade girl, the one who's being dissed by the popular crowd, right? What if you successfully get across the idea to this girl that absolutely no one's opinion in this world is important except for her own? And what if she really believes that? You know what might happen? She might seize on that notion and turn into a completely self-absorbed, obnoxious, and insufferable person who can't get along with anybody. Why? Because she stopped caring what people thought. She became shameless. It's not a virtue. The answer to shame, the antidote to shame is not to destroy our ability to feel it. Because shame is sometimes a useful emotion. In proper perspective and in the right doses, shame actually helps us to deepen our relationships with other people by making us kind, kinder and more considerate and more approachable people. Because shame, like guilt, is a warning light. 
It warns us that there is something askew in our relationships. In fact, because the emotion of shame is so powerful, and it's really more powerful than guilt, sometimes the shame warning light goes off before the guilt warning light goes off, right? And the shame one goes off brightly, like, boo, ooga, ooga, shame. And think about Adam and Eve in the garden. What kicked in first after they sinned, shame or guilt? Remember? Yeah, it was shame. They all of a sudden realized they were naked and they hid themselves. Sometimes a person who has done something sinful won't sense it right away. But when he thinks about what other people would think of him if they ever found out what he was doing, that's when shame kicks in. And sometimes that wakes up the person's sense of guilt as well. Now the danger is that shame can be so strong that it keeps the person from dealing with the guilt because they don't want to come out into the open. There are times when a well-regulated sense of shame can actually help to preserve our witness as well, our witness to Jesus. Think about it. How successful a witness for Jesus is a wide-open, shameless person who doesn't care what anybody thinks of him? Usually not. In the long run, it may not matter a whole lot what people think of us, but we don't want to bring shame on Jesus, and we don't want to bring shame on our church, on the body of Christ. As an example, okay, you may think, is this really in the Bible? It definitely is. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul was talking to the Christians at Corinth, and, and these believers had had such issues with each other. There was so much disunity in the church, they were actually suing each other. They were taking each other to court before the unbelieving world and suing each other. And, so, and their sense of guilt about this hasn't kicked in yet. So Paul says to them, look, and this is a paraphrase, but he says, do you have any idea what it looks like to the unbelievers around you when they see you acting like this? What are these people going to think about your church? What are these people going to think about your Savior? And then Paul says, I say this to your shame. Whoa. And isn't it scary that shame is actually contagious in a way that guilt is not? That our actions can actually bring shame to other people, to our family, to our church, even to Jesus or to someone else we're close to. And their actions can do that to us as well. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What is the prodigal son saying? He's saying, look, Dad, it's just best for you if you disassociate with me and make me maybe a servant instead of a family member. The actions of this son did indeed bring shame to his family. They would have had to have brought shame as the neighbors found out what was going on and, you know, what's happening to this kid. This is going to reflect on Dad. And you get a hint of this when the older brother refers to his brother as this son of yours, Right? He seems to want to distance himself from his brother because he understands that shame is contagious. You say, that's not fair. Well, sometimes it isn't. usually isn't. That's the way shame is. And that's one of the reasons that it's so dangerous, which is where I want to go really in the time we have left, is talk about the danger of shame. So far today, I, I wanted you to see the differences in relationships between sh- guilt and shame and, and to appreciate that they are both valid and useful emotions. Yes, even shame, even though our culture is trying to totally do away with it. But just because shame is valid and useful does not make it any less dangerous. Because shame, perhaps more than any other emotion, can be extremely destructive to people very destructive. Shame can lead to severe discouragement. Sometimes it can just crush people and leave them pretty much helpless. And we have to be very, very careful around shame. Or when we do what perhaps is called today shaming people. Be very, very careful. I thought about this last week. We, um, 
we had a guest conductor leading the symphony chorus um, for the concert we had last weekend. Very high profile, very famous, very well-respected person in choral music, and it was great. We had a great time. He was a super conductor, but he had this habit in rehearsal. He would actually stop the music, and he would single a person out when he was doing something wrong. And so, you know, he'd be going along, and the orchestra's playing, and the soloists are singing, and the choir's singing, and all of a sudden he'd stop, and he'd say, hey, you, you back there with the long black hair and the Wake Forest t-shirt on, your, your nose is buried in your music. You can't look at me when you're doing that. That won't do. You know, and we're adults. We're not used to this. You know, when you do that in the classroom to a kid, all the other kids go, they look at the kid, right? When you do it to an adult, we all go, you know, looking away because we realize how shameful it is. Now, here's the question. Did that kind of public shaming work as a motivator? Yeah, it absolutely did. I, for one, was looking at the conductor a lot. And, and most of the people in there, I'd have to say, are relatively confident in their musical abilities. But what if he had stumbled upon the one person who was very self-conscious, very unconfident, and maybe already worried that all these other people were just better singers than they were, and why am I even here? You know, what if that's the person he had called out? Do you think maybe that would have done some long-term damage? One reason shame is so dangerous is that it can easily and often does lead to bigger problems, more lasting damage. If someone is repeatedly shamed, if they are repeatedly reminded that they don't measure up, that they don't belong, that there's something wrong with who they are, they will eventually develop low self-esteem. Now you say, oh, don't talk about self-esteem. I'm not talking about the good kind of low self-esteem. There is a good kind of low self-esteem that helps a person recognize that he doesn't have what it takes to get to heaven and he needs Jesus. But the bad kind of self-esteem is what I'm talking about. This is the persistent underestimation of your own dignity and worth. In other words, you feel like less of a person and it's permanent. Or they may even go farther and end up in what psychologists today call self-loathing. Self-loathing, the painful emotional experience of hating yourself. And as you might imagine, this leads to all sorts of dark places, including self-harm and even suicide. You may know someone who's been there. It is a tough hole to climb out of. But it probably started with just simple shame that was repeated. But here's another reason shame or shaming is so dangerous and, and even more destructive than laying a guilt trip on somebody. You think laying a guilt trip on somebody is bad? Laying a shame trip on somebody is more dangerous. Because when, when you point out someone's sin or guilt, in fact, the Bible tells us to do that sometimes, doesn't it, right? To talk to our brother about sin. But when you, when, you, when you point out someone's guilt or sin, you're not adding to the problem. All you're doing is, is helping them identify it, which could be a good thing. But when you point out somebody's shame, you are actually causing them shame even as you point it out, real time. Because the person that you are shaming is suffering a loss of social status and reputation even in the process of the conversation that you are having at that moment. This is especially true when you shame someone publicly, but it's also true to some extent even if you talk to them in private. Right? So let's say, let's say you're a Bible study leader at church. You've got a small group or a Sunday school class, and let's say that, that one of the members of, of your small group just talks way too much. Right? He's always talking, never shuts up, and as, as much as you... This is not our small group, by the way, those of you who are in our small group. I promise it's not you. We have a good dynamic. But as much as you subtly try to, to help and lead the discussion to other people participating and all that, it's not working. And you can tell it's affecting the whole group. And maybe a couple of the small group members have come up to you and they've said, you know what, I, 
I don't know how long I can stay in this group if this keeps happening. Every small group leader manual in the world will tell you that you're eventually going to have to have an individual conversation with this person on the side. But what do you say? Let me give you two choices, okay? Here's the first thing you can say. You can say, you know, it seems like you're really eager to share your thoughts and opinions with the group, and that's good, but you're doing it a little too often, and it's really affecting the group dynamic. Or you could say this. I've been getting a lot of complaints from the other small group members that you're just talking too much. Which one of those is going to more effectively solve the problem? The second one. That's going to work great. It is. And you know why? Because you probably won't ever see that guy in small group again. (laughs) And you might not see him in church again either. Because with his communication habits, it is possible this is the first time that he's ever really felt like part of a group like this. And the felt shame that comes from the knowledge that he has been denigrated in the eyes of these people who were so important to him might actually send him over the edge. Shame is that powerful. We need to be very careful in in, in doling it out. And there's one more thing to consider about shame. When when you feel guilty, when, when it comes to feeling guilty, there's something you can do about it. Right? We already mentioned this earlier. There's a path out of your guilt that you have control over. It involves confession and repentance and apologizing and a restoration of fellowship. All those things we can do. We, there's a path out of our guilt. But when it comes to shame, there is no such path. It isn't there. A person cannot deal with shame the same way that he or she would deal with guilt. People might try to deal with shame in all sorts of different ways. People try to deal with their feelings of shame by beating themselves up, by hurting themselves even sometimes, but that doesn't solve the problem. Other people, like we said, try to solve their shame by destroying their ability to feel it at all and trying not to care about anyone else, but the result of that is shamelessness, and that corrupts a person's character and it makes it impossible for them to form close relationships. Other people try to make up for their shame by working really hard and going all out to repair their reputation. But that might not work either because it's not up to them. Other people try to deal with their shame by good self-talk, right? Talking themselves out of it. Convincing themselves in their own minds, you know, I'm worthwhile. I'm a winner. People like me. But that doesn't work either. And you know why? Because the opposite of shame is not shamelessness. And the opposite of shame is not high self-esteem. The opposite of shame is honor. Honor is the uplifting or elevating of a person in the eyes of other people whose opinions he values. And here I'm giving away a pretty good chunk of next week's sermon, but listen, try as we might, it is impossible for a person to confer honor upon himself can't be done. It has to come from somewhere else. And that means that a person that is caught in shame is in a very real sense helpless until someone else comes and lifts him out of it. Okay. I've given you a lot to think about today and there's a lot more to say next week about dealing with our shame or I should say dealing with the shame of others. But for now as we head into communion I want you to think once more about the words of that prodigal son. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And I want to ask you, does this describe where you're at? 
Perhaps even in this, this morning, maybe you're right there with God. You know? And maybe, maybe you haven't been a Christian very long and you keep messing things up and you keep doing the wrong thing and saying the wrong thing and you're never going to get this right and you're kind of falling down on the job and you're wondering if you can even call yourself a Christian. Or perhaps you've been a Christian for a long time but you've given in to some familiar sin and it seems like it's the millionth time or some character flaw that you've always had and you thought you maybe had gotten rid of it's reared its ugly head again and you're thinking, how, how could I still be like this after so long following Jesus? Can I even call myself a real Christian? Listen, the answer to this is not to beat yourself up. It's not to work your way back to a state of worthiness that you never earned in the first place. Nor is the answer just to talk yourself out of your shame or try to stamp out those feelings themselves. The answer is to remember something. To remember that Jesus, on the cross of Calvary, he took upon himself all of your sin and guilt and he received the punishment for that sin and that guilt upon himself. But you also need to remember this, and you may not have thought about this, but Jesus also took our shame. He took the shame that we have of being fallen, broken, corrupted, pathetic human beings who are unable to improve our own position and unable to shed our own well-deserved, scandalous reputation. He lowered himself to become human like us, made out of the dust of the earth. He lowered himself. He identified with sinners. He ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. He was rejected. He was slandered. He was, he was disrespected. He was slapped. He was beaten. He was repeatedly mocked. And just as the first Adam, out of disobedience to God, ate from a tree and felt the shame of his own nakedness, the second Adam, Jesus, was stripped naked and hung on a tree and put to shame because he obeyed his Father's will. Jesus received the ultimate dishonor, the ultimate shame. The results of what he did, the results for us, look a lot like what ultimately happened to the prodigal son. Kill the fatted calf. Throw a party. Put a robe on his body and a ring on his finger. He was dishonored. Jesus was dishonored so that we could be honored and not ashamed. That's right. There is no shame for the one who trusts in him.